I looked really super physically fit on the outside, but I had replaced all that meat that I was eating with dairy products. Instead of getting a turkey sub, I was eating a cheese sub with three times the amount of cheese. I found a lump in my left breast and it turned out it was stage four metastatic breast cancer. Well, hello there, and welcome to the Exam Room Podcast, brought to you by the Physicians Committee. Hi, I am the weight loss champion, Chuck Carroll. Thank you so very much for giving the show a listen this week, or a view, or a download. Wherever it is in the world that you are, we appreciate the fact that you are here. On today's show, we are going to be taking a deep dive on soy, and we're going to be taking that plunge with one of my favorite all-time guests, dietitian extraordinaire... Lee Crosby. If you'll recall on the last show of our Let's Beat Breast Cancer series, I spoke with a breast cancer survivor who was told that she couldn't eat soy because of the estrogen factor. She was told that it would raise her risk of recurrence. So what we're going to do is we're going to revisit a portion of that conversation today with Lee and see what she has to say about it. And this isn't really uncommon at all. We've been told from an early age that soy produces estrogen in the body. Even men have been avoiding soy like the plague because they fear they will develop breasts. Soy has been cast away, discarded, voted off the island, however you want to put it. But we should be asking ourselves, should we really be shunning soy? That is what Lee is here to tell us, and this is a great half-hour conversation exploring those myths and why we may need to start rethinking a thing or two. And Lee, she is coming prepared with dozens of studies armed with a ton of research to make her point. So buckle up. Fascinating science is ahead. And then after we speak with Lee, we will be hearing from Christine Collins. And Christine's story is so moving. Diagnosed with stage four breast cancer, she quickly found herself entrenched in a life and death struggle. And she had been eating a vegetarian diet, but she says that ice cream and cheese, they were still regularly on her menu. And then... Christine discovered the vegan lifestyle. She goes all in and she fights back against cancer with everything she has and a ton of plants. And at the end of the fight, it would be Christine's arms that were being raised in victory. She had slayed the beast and now she's moving on to another fight. And that is to educate others, including her own oncologist. So Christine, she is here today to pay for what she has learned in hopes of preventing others from having to go through the same struggle. Before we move on, I wanted to let you know that the Physicians Committee's Let's Beat Breast Cancer campaign is made possible in part by Eat Well, Stay Well, offering health coaching and cooking classes by Physicians Committee Food for Life instructor Sharon McRae. With the goal of getting people to follow the healthiest diet on the planet, Sharon is there to get your health back on track. Find out more at eatwell-staywell.com. 
by Green Fair Organic Cafe, serving local, organic, and whole food plant-based meals. Green Fair is the perfect pit stop before taking off or touching down from Dulles Airport. With meal planning and an extensive 21-day kickstart program to get you started on your plant-based journey, Green Fair is a pillar of health in the Washington, D.C. community. Browse their menu and learn more at greenfair.com. And by Veggie Grill, a fast, casual, vegan restaurant chain serving up all of your favorite classics, specially crafted with only the freshest ingredients. 29 locations in California, Oregon, Washington, and Illinois. Find one near you at VeggieGrill.com. Coming up a little bit later in the show, Dr. Christy Funk will be back with the third of our four steps to beating breast cancer. And today she will be shining a light on alcohol. Because what you will learn is that it really doesn't matter whether it's wine or beer or spirits, even one drink a day can significantly increase your risk of cancer. And Dr. Funk, she is here to explain exactly why that is. But today, we start with dietitian and my close personal friend, Lee Crosby. She's here. She's going to be stepping back into the exam room to take a look at the myths surrounding soy. Is it really something we should be keeping off of our plate? Let's find out. Rolling right along here on the Exam Room Podcast, brought to you by the Physicians Committee with the weight loss champion, Chuck Carroll. Thanks so much for being here as we continue to take a look at breast cancer, all month long part of our big Let's Beat Breast Cancer campaign. And as I said at the top of the show, this particular episode devoted to shattering soy myths. And there is no better myth buster that I know than the woman sitting across the table from me. She is beloved around here. She is oh so smart. She is known as the Fiber Queen. She has a a crown and a scepter. She's just amazing. We welcome <laughs> wow. Dietitian Lee Crosby back to the show. What's up, Lee? Not too much, Chuck. It's kind of, I feel I feel a little humbled by that introduction. It's been too long. I'm like, who are you talking about? We have had <laughs> listeners write in and be like, "Where is Lee?" You know? You've seen that. Uh, upstairs, toiling away. I know. You are very busy up at the Barnard <laughs> Medical Center. But we have this great campaign now, so totally worth it. I know. This is this is exciting. This is our fourth episode. Um, Fantastic. And soy is such a, a big one for uh, women and breast cancer because there is this, this myth out there that if you eat soy, you're going to get breast cancer. It's I almost like a it. foregone conclusion. Where does this idea stem from? Well, I, I understand a little bit how intuitively someone might think, okay, well, but here's the thing. So soy contains these substances called isoflavones, mm-hmm. and these have also been called phytoestrogens, and they do have some mild estrogenic effects. And so it's reasonable to think, well, gosh, if estrogen, having high estrogen levels can fuel breast cancer growth, then I sure don't want to eat something that might contain something that could act like an estrogen. Right. So... I think that's where this myth has sort of 
gotten some legs. Um, unfortunately, or fortunately, actually, if you want to reduce your risk, the opposite is actually true. So we have excellent data suggesting that women who eat more soy, and we're talking whole soy foods here, not like isolated supplements. Okay. Um, women who eat more soy have a lower risk of getting breast cancer and a lower risk of recurrence. That's good. to Okay. So you've mentioned supplements. Um, what happens if you get it through supplements? Does that you don't get that risk or does it become dangerous at that point? Yeah. So every time sort of my general rule and there are times when, for example, taking a B12 supplement important if you're on a plant based diet. For sure. But in general, if you're trying to short circuit the system to get some kind of advantage by concentrating something down into a supplement, I feel like that often backfires. And I feel like that's what's going on here as well. So soy isoflavone supplements, there actually is a little bit of data linking intake of those supplements in women who have a family history or personal history of breast cancer with increased risk of recurrence. But again, you've taken something that is at a lower level in a whole soy food and concentrated into effectively a pharmacological dose. And it's the same thing in terms of vitamin A. It actually, when you're eating it in vitamin A-rich foods, so things like you know carrots and sweet potatoes, it's actually linked to a lower risk of lung cancer. But if you take it as an isolated supplement, it increases the risk of lung cancer. So we see this throughout the epidemiological literature, and I think this is probably an example of that. All right. So all of this ties back to estrogen. Correct. Why don't we then define what estrogen is in case somebody's curious. All right. That is an excellent point. So estrogen is a female hormone. It's made by women, unsurprisingly. But perhaps surprisingly, it's also made by men to a much smaller extent. Really? Absolutely. Yeah. And there are actually a couple of, well, multiple different forms, but there's estradiol, which is more common in premenopausal women and estrone in postmenopausal women. Two types there, but as I understand, there are also two types of estrogen receptors, right? There are, and they have very different impacts in terms of what happens when estrogen binds to them. So estrogen receptors are like little docks that sit on the surface of cells, like breast cells, for instance. And the two different kinds, estrogen binds to them, but there are alpha receptors and beta receptors, and there are very different effects depending on which kind of receptor is bound. Hmm. Mm -hmm. All right. Alpha and beta. Interesting. Uh, Isoflavones. We mentioned that word kind of at the top as well. Right. How do they help? Okay. So one thing I forgot to mention, those alpha estrogen receptors, those are kind of troublemakers. They have a tendency when estrogen binds to them to promote the growth of breast cancer cells, for instance, Whereas those beta receptors, I like to think of them as sort of the peacemakers. They actually mm-hmm. dial down cell growth. So how do isoflavones tie in? Isoflavones actually preferentially bind. To, well, you guess. What kind of receptor do you think they bind to? Uh, the troublemaker ones? The, no, the peacemakers. <laughs> I'm sorry. I think he maybe wasn't listening to me. I mean, I listened intently. <laughs> sure you I'm were. just thinking a couple steps mm-hmm. ahead. And all of, you're making you're me just, look you're bad just, here, You're Carlton. just testing me. I understand I, how it I is. Am. All right. So, yeah, that's right. The beta <laughs> receptors. Now, are you testing me? All right. So they bind to the beta receptors preferentially, and that actually helps decrease cell growth. It gives these sort of slow down, stop signals as opposed to the alpha receptor, which is more favored by a woman's own natural estrogen. Mm. Yeah, and that alpha receptor is the one that gives us kind of like grow, baby, grow signals. Right, So and that's what, yeah. So that's exactly why when you're eating so- whole soy foods and getting these you know healthy doses of isoflavones that they could actually help reduce the risk of getting breast cancer. So what data do we have here that 
supports the idea that soy foods actually lower. I mean, we're talking specifically about data here. Lowers the risk, not raises it, of breast cancer. Yeah, and I'm all about the data because honestly, don't tell. Coming into this, I actually kind of used to think before I learned about plant-based nutrition that soy was iffy for women with breast cancer too or who are at risk for it. And now I think the opposite. So we have ever-growing body of research showing that women who consume more soy are less likely to get breast cancer. So one study, example, found that women averaging a cup of soy milk or about half a cup of tofu daily have a 30% lower risk of developing breast cancer compared to women who don't eat very much soy at all. Wow. And then a 2013 paper, and this is I like this because they looked at 22 different studies, and they used a technique called meta-analysis. I love that word. That translates to big analysis. Yeah. <laughs> What they found was, and these are among these are among Asian women, um, because they're the ones consuming more soy. Right. They found that those who consumed the most isoflavones had a 32 percent lower risk of breast cancer, and that was for both pre and postmenopausal cancers. A 2014 meta-analysis reached similar conclusions. It should be noted that these women are getting their isoflavones predominantly from whole soy foods. Mm. Yeah, keeps mm. coming back to that, doesn't it? It does. And this data, I mean. It goes back – one of the studies you referenced here was from 2008, but this data goes back even further than that. Um, yeah. Yeah. This is not – it's not news. Right. And and yet there's still this pervasive myth out there, as we said at the top of the show, that soy is really, really bad, especially if you've been diagnosed with breast cancer. you got a family history of it. Like just avoid it at all costs. Right. And doctors are, are telling their patients that. As a matter of fact, one uh, woman I had on the show last weekly, a wonderful woman by the name of Jennifer Hill, mm-hmm. breast cancer survivor, yeah, had her in studio last week. And she mentioned that she eliminated that from her diet. As a matter of fact, she said Aww. flat out that she, she couldn't take it or eat it. And right. I wanted to play this clip from the show for you and get your reaction to it. Sure. I had found out I had to avoid soy, so I can't have any soy product either because of the estrogen. Mine is HER2 positive, and it's also estrogen and progesterone positive. So here she is, a breast cancer survivor. Right. Her doctor is telling her not to eat soy. What's going on here? So unless there's something I don't know about her personal medical history, and there could be, so I wouldn't want to necessarily contradict what a physician said to her, but... If it's just because she has a personal history of estrogen receptor positive breast cancer, I think it's unfortunate that she got that advice. Mm. And the reason for that is that we actually have data suggesting that um, one study found that and it was over 1,500 women, and they found actually a 60% reduction in the risk of having recurrence in women who are taking tamoxifen, that's typically women who have an ER positive estrogen receptor positive cancer, Mm. who are eating the highest amounts of soy compared to those eating the lowest amounts of soy. And that was actually in Western women. So because a lot of these studies are done in Asian women because they're eating enough soy that you can delineate. Right. So there was some increased risk if women were not taking tamoxifen if they'd been diagnosed but it wasn't this was the this was the really strong connection that came out of that study so and again because most women who have an ER positive cancer are taking tamoxifen we're getting a significant decrease in risk for those women when they are eating higher levels of soy right so standard course of treatment then 
Yeah, yeah, effectively. And then in people who have estrogen-negative breast cancers, they've also found the same thing, that women who are eating the most soy isoflavones, 21% lower risk of dying from all causes compared to those who eat the least. Wow. Yeah. Yeah. And so it's also, here's the other piece. We're always focusing on the isoflavones, but it's also about what soy is displacing in the diet. So if someone's eating tofu, they're probably not eating a hamburger. Ah, so there's that piece as well. Good point. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Good point. Yep. So talking to their veggie burgers probably, right? So you, if you're eating a veggie burger, you're not going yep. to the drive-thru, right? <laughs> Pretty much. I got you. Yep. That's, all right. So that's that's a really good point. Um, and there are even more studies on that. I can give you a little bit more data. Can I just do like one more? Dive in. This is me. Come on. All right. Women's Healthy Eating and Living Study showed that soy can help protect breast cancer survivors again. They found that women eating the most soy cut the risk of cancer coming back or cancer death by about half. Recurrence. Yeah, so that's a pretty decent reason. And then, well, last one study of over 5,000 women who had been diagnosed with breast cancer for about four years, and they found that women who regularly ate soy products, and these are things like soy milk, tofu, or edamame, these are those whole soy foods, had a, were about a third less likely to have their cancer come back and 29% less likely to die from their cancer. Wow. So soy is actually something that unless there's something else going on that someone's physician is like, you know what, mm, you need to stay away from this, or if they have an allergy, if, if there's not some other you know, specific reason not to eat it, I think it's actually advantageous for women who've had a diagnosis to eat soy. Wow. Yeah. Okay. So not only is it preventative, it potentially, you know, potentially preventative, risk reducing, it risk reducing. <laughs> it also reduces the risk of recurrence. Correct. So yes. It's good before good. At, like it's just good. Yeah. And it actually appears to be extra protective if girls and teens are eating tofu products and soy. So there, it, and this is probably because it's when breast tissue is actually developing that they're getting these sort of calming signals effectively from the peacemakers? isoflavones, yes, binding to these peacemaker receptors. Mm-hmm. So there's actually extra advantage, it appears, particularly from studies in Asian women where they're eating more of these soy products in adolescence, that that actually gives an extra protective effect in adulthood. Wow. Yeah, cool, right? Wow. Yeah. So eat up during your formative years, basically. Yeah, yeah, yeah. All right. That's it's that to me is fascinating how eating habits at such an early age can make such a huge difference later in life. They really can. And on the flip side of that, unfortunately, people who eat more red meat during their adolescent years are more likely to have an increased risk of breast cancer and benign breast disease down the road. So, uh-huh. yeah, it cuts both ways. Um, I want to ask you a little bit about bone health and breast cancer survivors. Um, there's some concern among men, obviously – you know, uh, less prevalent among men, breast cancer is, but sure. some concern that eating soy isn't healthy because it causes the release of female hormones or even lowers, lowers testosterone levels. Uh, what's, what's where do point? I even start with this? I don't know. Start from the top. You tell I mean, me. no. Does eating soy make you release estrogen? No. There's n- there are no documented adverse effects on men at the levels that people are eating soy. Uh, meta-analysis show that neither soy products nor the supplements, which again, we're not recommending here, but neither of those affect testosterone levels in men. And I just want to say that, okay, I hear a lot about, well, there's phytoestrogens in soy. And okay, again, and we're going to talk about how those actually are advantageous to men too. Cool. But the same guys who are talking to me about oh, gosh, soy has a phytoestrogen in it. I'm not going to eat it. Well, actually, they don't talk to me that much about it, but I sure hear about it. They know where (laughs) I stand on that. But they are the same people who will go out there and eat their cheeseburger and eat their pizza covered in cheese, which has 
loads of honest to goodness actual mammalian estrogen in it. What? So they'll eat. I mean, cheese is a concentrated source of estrogens. I know. I know. We actually just have put out a complaint about this. Yes, indeed. So, but those same guys were like, oh, I can't eat soy. It's got, you know, there could be a phytoestrogen in it. We'll then go and eat a big old wad of stuff that definitely has real female hormones in it. What? Where's the logic? Well, that's the major disconnect. I mean, that's why we filed that petition with the FDA, you know, to kind of put it in sports terms. Coach people up. <laughs> educate them. Yeah, know? I just had to have a little rant on that because it makes me crazy every time I hear I can't eat soy because it's going to, you know, make me grow boobs. All these things. You, 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 you people actually believe this stuff. I know. And it concerns me because even for men's health, and we're going to get into that, it can be protective. Mm. This isn't just a, for the ladies, although it's great. In this case, what's good for the goose, good for the gander. Let's put a capper on uh, soy and bone health uh, among breast cancer survivors. Sure, yeah. Uh, good there for bone health as well? Yeah, actually, so this is cool. It's a pretty fresh study. So June of this year, uh, the Journal of the National Cancer Institute published this. It's from the Shanghai Breast Cancer Survival Study. They looked at more than 4,000 women with breast cancer. And what they found was that higher soy intake was associated with a 77% reduced risk of osteoporotic fractures in younger women. So that's pretty nice. Again, it's acting as an estrogen receptor modulator, they think, these isoflavones, to actually help protect bone. Wow. Yeah. Okay. It's cool. That is very cool. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And funny thing is, a lot of people, the same people who are eating gobs of cheese, probably will say, well, you have to drink milk to get those strong bones, right? Or you could drink some fortified soy milk, but okay. I, I know. Or, <laughs> or oh, well, the purpose of this show is to educate, right? Correct. That's it. So yes. Baby steps. You know, just a few years ago, like probably, you know, no more than four or five years ago, I would have been the guy would be like, yeah, strong bones, have a glass of milk. Oh, yeah. That's what I learned. Yeah. Yep. You taught that my entire life. Oh, yeah. Milk was healthy. I drank two glasses a day, three if my parents could get me to do it. Yeah. But here's the funny thing. I didn't see, I, and I didn't pursue either but i never saw a single study that said that milk was good for strong bones all i saw were ads on tv right oh sure now to be fair i wasn't really looking that hard but (laughs) well exactly nor did i pursue but then start doing this show get really in tune with health and the data is just overwhelming for avoiding it yeah i mean there's just not it they're just I think it's more built on sort of like cultural perception than actual data when it comes to dairy. Right. For the most part. That makes sense. Yeah. Uh, let's pivot and talk about uh, some other forms of cancer uh, that soy has some uh, positive effects on. Because really, it, we're talking specifically about breast cancer this month, but eat your soy because it's good for a, a number of different forms. It is. And I want to – this is this is for the gentleman out there. Like I promised I was going to talk about this. So there is another analysis, more than 14 studies showing that consuming more soy linked to a 26% lower risk of prostate cancer. And I got real curious about like why that might be. And here's another fun fact. Mm. The epithelium cells in the prostate actually express the estrogen receptor beta. What? And so when you have these isoflavones go in and bind that ER beta, it actually slows the growth or it gives slowing signals in terms of cell growth to prostate cells. Fun. Did you know that? I did not. There you go. Look at you dropping a little nugget. Okay. I know, man. Had to do that. So smart. So again, men are also protected when they eat this. 
That's definitely good to know. Uh, what about fertility? You know, uh, is there any connection there? No, not no. But I want to circle back because it's not just about prostate cancer. That Word. was just one of them. Oh, but okay. Wait, there's more. But wait, there's more. Lung, endometrial, ovarian, and colon cancers all reduce risk linked with an increased intake of soy products. Mm. Yep. I know. That's a lot. It's pretty great, right? Okay. Now let's talk about soy infertility. All right. uh, does it affect fertility? Because I think that, again, that perception may be up there among, you know, men who haven't been coached up uh, that if I eat soy, well, that's got estrogen in it. It's going to lower my testosterone levels. I'm not going to be as fertile, blah, blah, blah. Yeah, no one's saying I'm going to eat cheese that has actual estrogen in it. That's going to lower my testosterone levels. But no, 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 truly, studies in both men and women have shown no effect of soy on fertility. Um, in fact, a lot of people worry about feeding their infants a soy formula versus a cow's milk formula. And there's no difference in reproductive health in, as adults in infants who are set, fed soy versus a dairy formula. Oh, so, wow. yeah. So, and again, there's also the myth. There's so many. You're right. There are so many myths with soy. That's why we're that, shattering them today. Yeah, that soy causes early puberty in girls. And this is just a, one smaller study, but they looked at 327 young and adolescent girls and they found no relationship between soy consumption and the younger age of puberty. You know, Dr. Barnard has sat across from me in the very chair that you're sitting in now. And he has talked about how he thinks that all of these animal hormones that we're ingesting through dairy, through meat, that's what's spurring early puberty, not soy. Um, possible. And also just richer diets in general. Right. Yeah. Yep. Mm -hmm. Yes. So I would not be surprised. Um, but it, okay. So let's just, you know, keep the shine on soy here. Uh, soy, not just good for cancer, uh, though, because it's also beneficial toward fibroids, correct? Yeah. So that's a condition that, again, can cause heavy menstrual bleeding and discomfort, and people have to have surgery sometimes. Soy products may reduce the risk of fibroids in women. And just in case you guys don't know what fibroids are, that's good. I don't want you to have to know what they are, but you're going to learn now. Yeah. Yeah. They're knots of muscle that form within that thin layer of muscle that lies underneath the uterine lining. And a study in Japanese women found that the more soy they were eating, the less likely they were to need surgery on their uterus. And that surgery is usually done for fibroids. So it would suggest that fibroids were less frequent. Um, they did a study of Western women. So this was actually in Washington state. And soy didn't seem to either hurt or nor help. But again, that's likely because there just wasn't enough difference in levels of soy intake to be able to sort of tease that out. Interestingly, though, in that Washington state study, mm -hmm. what did make a big difference were lignans. That's another type of phytoestrogen. Um, it's found in flaxseed and whole grains. And this is just sort of a sidebar. But women who are eating more flaxseed and whole grains had less than half the risk of fibroids. Really? Yeah. So, again, if you need another reason to eat, you know, a diet based on whole plant foods, here you go. That's significant. Flax. I mean, that's such an easy thing to just throw in a smoothie if you're oh, yeah. one of those. Get it. You know, you can buy it ground to store it in your freezer. I chuck in my oatmeal in the mornings. Mm -hmm. Super tasty. You can throw that in uh, Dr. Funk's antioxidant super smoothie. Is it not? It's got to be in there already. Yeah, I mean, if it's not. <laughs> I, I, Pretty I much mean, everything she, is in that smoothie. She did say, and, and it's something to the effect of, <sighs> you know, it has the most cancer-kicking components on any glass of anything on God's green earth. Amen to that. Yeah. Right down to she has turmeric with a little bit of black pepper in there for the for the yeah. piperine so you absorb their curcumin better. I mean, she's got it all figured out. Like she said that she's been working on this thing for years. <laughs> like seriously, like she's been tinkering with this recipe for yeah. almost eight years now. I, w I believe it. Yeah. 
I've actually had it. It's pretty good. It is pretty good. Yeah. It is. I was I was a little skeptical going in because I'm like, it's got black pepper in it. It's a smoothie, but it was pretty good. No, like, yeah. yeah. I mean, I, I had it with you that same morning. It was, it was at uh, WJA. <laughs> yeah. If I'm not I mean, it's saying. a little stout. Don't yeah. get me wrong, but yeah. it's pretty good. Yeah. I'm telling you. It was on point. Uh, by the way, uh, this is a good point to say uh, you can get the free e-cookbook. It's called the Breast Ever e-cookbook. <laughs> Um, I'm the one that labeled it that. I know. You're so smart. <laughs> Such a dork. Um, but anyway, so if you want that recipe, you can get that right now. Go to letsbeatbreastcancer.org. Take the pledge, right? So you're going to be pledging to follow the four guidelines, the four prongs, as it were, <laughs> for lowering your risk of breast cancer. Yeah, just for a month. Just got to try it out for a month. See how it goes. That's it. And uh, as you're hearing this, we're more than two-thirds of the way through October. So Oh, gosh. Know, get, That's terrifying. Get on it. I know. Wow. Where's, the, where's the time going? I don't know but that cookbook is really great and the reason it is the breast ever cookbook one of the reasons is that it has dr funk's let's beat breast cancer breakfast breast dorito in it the breast dorito which is also, <laughs> also good. really good yeah i mean there's really not a bad um recipe in no. there at all. like the lasagna in there oh i'm stoked about this e-cookbook what do you want to call it i don't know it's a really awesome collection of recipes i know yeah um and and, and my wife like that lasagna is just it's it's life changing. It's really good, right? It is so good. And the brownie bites in the end, I'm telling you. I know. And they're not even that they're not I don't want to say they're not that bad for you. They're actually I would say I would venture to say they're good for you. Of course they are. I mean, they're in the cookbook. They're going to. (laughs) But here's the thing. I mean, every single thing in that cookbook is going to have a cancer fighting component. Correct. Oh, yeah. That's the cool thing. That's the whole point. Nothing in there will promote the growth of cancer. Correct. But everything in there will reduce the risk of cancer. But don't go telling people it's healthy because they don't need to know that. No. That's our little (laughs) secret. (laughs) Um, All right. So we were talking about fibroids. Right. Let's talk about Fibroids. What? I know. Love the rhyming. What is the story there? All right. That. <laughs> the story with the that is that <laughs> <laughs> is that clinical trials have definitely shown that soy products do not affect the thyroid in healthy people. Now, there is a caveat here. Soy isoflavones can bind to iodine, and the body uses iodine to make its thyroid hormones. So, in theory, people who are eating higher amounts of soy might need a little bit more iodine in their diets. And I am glad to actually be talking about this because I think I've mentioned this before, but iodine can be a nutrient of concern on a plant-based diet. Uh, Most people are getting it from dairy, not because it's magically in dairy, but because they use um, iodophore-based disinfectants to clean the cow's udders and traces get into the milk. Sometimes they also put it in the feed, but a lot of it's coming from the disinfectant. And again, you just need a little bit. And if you've ever been to a working dairy, you know, they slap the stuff up there and then they just put the little vacuum things right on. Anyways, moving on. So (laughs) if you can't see it right now, his facial expression, classic. (laughs) That's like, ew. How are you getting – you're getting iodine from disinfectant? (laughs) Well – And sometimes they add it to feed, but yeah. Wow. Again, you just need trace amounts, but you need trace amounts. So iodine found in lots of, well, it's found in a lot of foods. It's more concentrated in foods that are grown by the coast. So like produce grown by the coast. Well, we don't know where our produce is grown. So it's also really high in sea vegetables. So things like that nori wrapper on sushi, um, dulse, those kinds of things. You have to be careful because some of the kelps can actually be really high in iodine. So I generally will suggest, hey, if you want to get iodine from sea vegetables, you can either, you know, take a kelp tablet that has exactly 100% of the daily value, or you can just eat veggie sushi once or twice a week or have those little sea snacks things once or twice a week. What about seaweed salad? 
that would be a very rich source. It Go for be. it. Yeah. I mean, that, that, that is delicious. There is a, uh, if you're into seaweed salad. a vegetarian restaurant uh, near our house that is just out of this world seaweed salad. Yeah. Like, unlike anything I've ever had in my entire Really? Life. Really. It should be in the eat cookbook. Uh, well, you know what? There's next year. The, oh. Next year. Let's plan ahead, shall we? <laughs> Uh, all right, it's picking up where we left off. Okay, but wait, and then one more thing. This is yes. it's not a, it's not really a rant. It's just a little tiny thing that I know pink Himalayan salt is trendy and cool, and like I know sea salt is trendy and cool, but neither one of those has iodine in them mm. to any significant amount. So I would like to encourage people not to add more salt to their food because I'm not a big fan of added salt in general. But if you're going to cook at home, to switch over to just that iodized salt that your grandma used to use to make sure you're getting enough iodine, because when you're eating at restaurants or and you're eating, you know, processed foods, almost none of that salt is iodized. So that's another really easy way that people can just, you know, set and forget it. You just right. have just use iodized salt at home when you're cooking. Right. Don't add any more than you're already using. Right. If you use it, use iodized. Gotcha. All right. All right. Good to know. Um, one other caveat here. Soy products can reduce the absorption of some of the medicines used to treat hypothyroidism. Ah. So it's not to say don't eat soy because soy still has a lot of health benefits. It's just that you may need to get your medication levels adjusted by your doctor if you're going to significantly increase your intake. All right. So we've talked about cancers. We've talked about thyroids. Mm-hmm. We've talked about fibroids. What else can soy do? I mean, this seems to be one of those magical foods. I see that big old <laughs> smile on your face. It's like, oh, Is it a magical boy. fruit? The more you eat. Okay, moving uh, on. Anyway, hey. Uh, hey. Edamame, I'm just saying. Okay. Fiber queen. <laughs> it, it always comes down to that. <laughs> All right, so soy may be anti-inflammatory. There's another fun fact for you. Yeah. Going back to that Shanghai Women's Health Study, they looked at the diet of 1,005, not to get too specific, um, <laughs> Chinese women. The more soy products they consumed, the less inflammation they had in their bodies. And we know that long-term chronic inflammation that's linked to some cancers, type 2 diabetes, and heart disease. So, yeah, if you need a reason. And then this has been known for a a pretty long time that soy products appear to modestly reduce bad cholesterol levels, that LDL cholesterol. Um, Of course, soy is free from cholesterol because not from an animal. Right. And contains very little in terms of that artery-clogging, saturated fat. And, of course, if you're eating tofu, you're not eating animal products. Hmm. So for lots of reasons, it helps lower cholesterol yeah, that was kind of what we were talking about toward the beginning of this segment yep yeah see kind of tying it all thing. together here. i know it's kind of come <laughs> full circle uh what else haven't we touched on that you think is important here is there anything that we've left off i feel like we've covered most of it a couple of things again i want to emphasize when i'm talking about hey let's eat more soy i don't mean let's eat more processed soy stuff i mean let's eat more those whole soy foods. So things that are made from the whole bean without doing, you know, a lot of isolates or that kind of thing. So we're talking edamame, soy milk, tofu, tempeh. That's step one. And then the second piece here, because I get this question a lot, I wanted to address it. And that is GMO and organic soy. Ah, here we go. Because everyone's asking about it. So uh, most, just to figure out, well, what is GMO soy besides like a little scary sounding? Um, it's Well, it is. It's genetically modified. And what it's modified to do is withstand, there are, different varieties, but most of them are are modified to withstand the application of a pesticide called glyphosate. Okay. So that is the issue. And so it's less the actual genetic modification and more that there are traces of glyphosate in the soy products. And we do have just one study showing that if you drip levels of glyphosate similar to those that can be found 
in the human body onto breast cancer cells in a lab, which don't act the same way as breast cancer cells in the body necessarily. But it's still, it's at least an indicator. It does activate estrogen receptors and they grow. The glyphosate does. So the cancer cells grow. But, but there are no studies showing this in actual humans. And it's certainly not a reason to avoid soy products in general. But my thought here, general recommendation is go ahead and eat soy, no matter what kind it is, if you can afford organic, or if you are very concerned, or you maybe have a personal history of breast cancer, go ahead and buy the organic. Right. But it's certainly not a reason to not eat soy. Gotcha. Yeah. Gotcha. Well, uh, wouldn't you say organic versus not? I mean, that's kind of go ahead and, and, and eat the conventional, as it were. Yes, it's conventional. better than not eating it. Correct. All. Better to eat the conventional. And then if you're getting organic, it's by definition, theoretically non-GMO. Gotcha. Yeah. All right. Good to know. Yeah. Um, last question for you. We, sure. We've talked a lot about these foods, but what are some specific ones that you would recommend? I know edamame was at the top of the list. What are what are the others here? <laughs> we'll do it one more time, Chuck. I know. But it's okay <laughs> to be a little bit redundant here. All right. Edamame, of course, because yes. that is as whole, literally as whole food as you can get. Yeah. Also, soy milk, tofu, tempeh. What we're really trying to stay away from are like the, the isolates, like the soy protein isolate. Mm. Yeah. Right. I remember like somebody told me, and this was before I was even plant-based, they were like, dude, you're missing out on so many nutrients by eating the isolates of anything. That yeah. And again, is it probably better than eating like a steak? Well, sure. But right. it's not as optimal as eating these whole soy forms right. instead. Right. Isolate. Yep. I assume that they're just isolating a few little it sounds parts sad, of it. sounds sad, doesn't it? I know. It? Nobody well, wants to be isolated. To yeah. I know. The saddest. Don't eat sad, sad food. Don't, no. No. <laughs> <laughs> Don't eat sad. Eat happy. Eat uh, happy. Eat happy. All right. Well, uh, Lee Crosby, thank you very much. You are a wealth of information. We got to get you back on I'm the show more of often. I mean, <laughs> hi And that's exactly why we need to get you back on the show more. Would love to be here. And people miss you. I'm dead serious. Like three people. <laughs> you three people who miss me. Good job. Whatever. <laughs> I've, I can show you hundreds and hundreds of emails mm-hmm. as soon as I write them from listeners who say that they have missed you. Aw. I know. No. Let me write them. I'll, I'll <laughs> say, flattery, yeah. flattery helps. What uh, you need. <laughs> all right. Again, uh, let's be breastcancer.org. Go there. Take the pledge. You can yes. get that free e-cookbook and learn more about the four steps that we've been talking about all month coming up in just a little bit. Speaking of those steps, we're going to have Dr. Christy Funk. She will be here to talk about the third step in the process. and. That one would be limiting oh, alcohol. Sorry, ladies, but yes. I know. Oh. I know. It's, a, it's an interesting <laughs> conversation, though. Uh, definitely but an stay important tuned one. for that. It is, it is an important one. You know, and it kind of goes back to what uh, Dr. Barnard and I were talking about um, at the beginning of the month. And that was, you know, he's, he's sitting on this flight and he opens up the in flight menu and they're serving a pink martini. Oh, come on. Yeah. Yeah. Oh. No, party Por- foul. Portion of the proceeds go to benefit breast cancer research. Yeah. That just oh, knife in my dietitian heart and kind of twists. But it's it's really no different than seeing, you know, pink ribbons on cheese. Oh, or I know. Like that. I know. I just and the pink ribbon cookies and yeah. cupcakes, I'm like, guys, come on. It's like come on. It's well intentioned as as And that's said. the thing it is. That's what makes it doubly heartbreaking. I mean, and, and, but just to be real for a second, like that's Lee, I swear, this is why I love doing the show because the majority of people still don't know this. Like I said, just a few years ago, I was in the dark about all of this. 
Oh, yeah. I didn't know most of this until all of a sudden I was staring at potential for this myself, which thankfully didn't happen, but it got kind of close. I was like, oh, right. I should research this whole lifestyle for breast health. And again, that's why I eat plant-based. Right. And why I don't drink much anymore. Uh, <laughs> but you're still at a lot of fun. Life is still fun. High on life, man. That's it, man. You get your kicks without <laughs> the spirits, girl. Something like that. Yeah, I appreciate you. Uh, anyway, so uh, Lee is very much more than just a face on the podcast she's very much somebody if you're in the washington dc area you can come and visit upstairs at the barnard medical center book an appointment barnardmedical.org you can go over their um, eating habits yeah give them some good advice advice motivation information teach them how to lower the risk of breast cancer that is correct if they have some extra questions yeah and lower the risk of lots of other stuff too that's the great thing about this i know it's pretty much good for all the things your patients are lucky they're okay. a lot of fun, I'll tell you. I, I feel lucky. I think that you draw the fun out of them. Like, they could be a total <laughs> like the outside life of... out of them. <laughs> You're not really selling me here, Chuck. <laughs> you suck the... I meant that in a good way. Come oh, on, and slip. Okay. Ah, nah. I mean, just messing know, with you. Yeah, I know. But they could be a total curmudgeon outside of the office or a doctor's office upstairs. And, you know, but when they're here, you're that ray of sunshine. None of my like, patients are curmudgeons. That you know I of. get the best ones. Yeah, maybe they are. Maybe on the sly. So- on the sly. Mm, maybe soy <laughs> is protective against curmudgeonness. <gasps> Could be. Want mm, to do a study. I don't know. Love it. All right. Book that appointment, barnardmedical.org. You can also <laughs> check her out at veggie-quest.com and on the tweeters, veggie underscore quest and the gram at Veggie Quest. Lee at Veggie Quest. There you go. There it is. That's Lee a ticket. Lee at Veggie Quest. We, we talk enough on there. I should just know that off the top of my head. I don't, I don't even know off the top of my head, I honestly. I don't know. Either way. Lee Crosby, <laughs> thank you so much. Thank you, Chuck. Time now to turn our attention to the inspiration for the week. It's really a lesson that no matter how difficult the circumstance, no matter what cards life has dealt you, there is always hope. There's always an opportunity to persevere and to create your own light even in the darkest of tunnels. Christine Collins, in her mid-40s, had been an avid athlete, always taking care of her body, was in top physical condition, and... She was the mother of two young girls. And then one day, her world would come crashing down with just one phone call from her doctor. She had breast cancer. And from there, things would become a blur. But once that emotional fog began to lift, Christine knew it was time to get to work. And even as that initial diagnosis was worse than originally feared, she still knew what she had to do because she wanted to be there for her daughters and she knew what she needed in order to win this fight. And when she did, victory after victory, in many regards, even astounding the doctors who were treating her. And now Christine is here to share her story, hoping to become a light for others who are still in the fight.
Rolling right along here on the Exam Room Podcast, brought to you by the Physicians Committee with the weight loss champion, Chuck Carroll. And now it is time for inspiration. We've been talking about this, telling you that it's coming all show long, and now is finally the time. Because if there was ever a story that someone who is feeling lost and like they just don't have a friend in the world, they don't know what to do, they've just been diagnosed... This is the person that they should be talking to. And with that, we welcome Christine Collins to the show. Christine, thanks for being here. Oh, my pleasure. Thank you for having me. And thank you for being here. I know that you're super busy. You're you're a registered nurse. You also mm-hmm. are a certified health and wellness coach. And most importantly, you are the mother of two wonderful girls as well. So your hands are definitely full, and we appreciate you carving out just a little bit of time for us today. <laughs> my pleasure. You are extraordinary. You are a breast cancer survivor. And when when were you diagnosed? I was diagnosed in October of 2013. Yeah, six years ago this month, um, I found a a lump um, in my left breast. And it um, was very painful and very hard and very large. And um, I went to get it checked out and turned out it was stage four metastatic uh, breast cancer. Wow. Uh, yeah. It was shocking. Blindsided <laughs> you. Had you, uh, what was your life like up to that point? You strike me as being someone who, you know, is relatively physically fit, took care of themselves. Yeah, I um. I actually, you know, I, I grew up eating um, the standard American diet. Um, I was... Uh, eating a lot of animal protein, a lot of dairy products throughout my life. Um, when I started college, I had free reign access to all of those unhealthy foods and ate a lot of burgers and hot dogs and um, grilled cheese and uh, deli meats and things like that. Um, and uh, my last year of college, I picked up a second major, health and wellness and health science major. And um, in my health and wellness course, our professor challenged us to take a look at some of our habits and to change something we thought might be um, detrimental to our health. And um, I was a very big uh, fast food junkie as well. And so I decided to give that up. And um, interesting enough, uh, I've made two major dietary changes in my life, and both of them were connected to um, the ethical uh, reasons, were connected to ethical reasons as well. So I uh, had an insight into um, animal agriculture and um, the suffering and violence involved in um, uh, making meat for people to eat and um, so that was a big motivator between that and my health. Um, I became a vegetarian. How, how was difficult a- was it for you to give up fast food? I know for a lot of people, that is just one of the most difficult things in the entire world. I struggle with that forever in a day as well. Yeah, it, it, it was difficult. I, I really did eat a lot of fast foods. Um, and as a matter of fact, I, I still ate fast food for a while. I, I stopped eating Uh, beef and then I gave up chicken and I was still getting the fish fillets from McDonald's and things like that Um, but the more research I did about the animal suffering the more I didn't want any part of that so I I really was able having that motivator behind it I think it made it really a lot easier for for sure to um, to give up 
give up the foods. Um, yeah, so so I start and I started eating organic and I started exercising. I was running marathons, um, cycling, bike races. Um, I was mountain biking, strength training, all of those things. And I looked really super physically fit on the outside. Um, but I had replaced all that meat that I was eating with uh, dairy products. So I was, uh, instead of getting a turkey sub, I was eating a cheese sub <laughs> with uh, three times the amount of, of cheese on, on my sub. And I was eating, you know, a lot of ice cream and things like that. Um, so I may have looked healthy on the outside, but on the inside, not so much. <laughs> Don't beat yourself up for that. I mean, cheese is one of the most addictive foods known to man. I mean, Dr. Neil Barnard and I have talked about that at length on this show, and it's just unbelievable how how much people are, are just so hooked on queso like it, it's oh, it's just one yeah. of the craziest things in the entire world and we don't realize it but then he says something to the effect of well you know i talk to so many people and they say well I, i'd be able to go vegan but i really love cheese that's mm -hmm. that's the last sticking point for so many people sounds like it was for you as well it sure was. And I hear that all the time. I, I'm an animal rights advocate as well. And I do a lot of outreach. And uh, that is probably, you know, I love my cheese. I love my cheese. And that case of morphine is really a, a very addictive um, uh, substance, definitely. And um, I actually wasn't able to break free from that until I had um, received the cancer diagnosis. And uh, I... Um, once I began treatments, I could I couldn't really tolerate much food. Mm -hmm. um, I I had a very intensive treatment um, protocol, and so I was living on basically for my nutrients um, green drinks and smoothies and um, fruits and vegetables. And um, it it wasn't until I actually broke free from eating those foods that I realized how good I felt. And um, without having them for a little while, it, it was an addiction, you know, yep. it, it was definitely an addiction and I, I was able to stay away from it. Um, but once again, then I, I started to learn about the dairy industry about the same time and um, just about um, the ethicality of drinking um, cow's milk. Um, I really just did not agree with that at all. It didn't sit right with me, um, the indus industry practices. So Again, that fueled my uh, motivation to uh, give it up. Let's talk about the amount of time that elapsed between uh, when you were in college and then when you found that lump. Without, I mean, I hate to put you on the spot and ask, you know, no. how old you are, but yeah, I was diagnosed when I was forty-six years old. Okay. So yeah, it was a good twenty years, twenty-six, twenty-seven years, and. Um, yeah, it was I thought I was living a healthy lifestyle, you know, really trying to do all the right things. And um, and uh, then I received that diagnosis. And then once I changed my lifestyle again and gave up the dairy, I realized how wonderful you can feel. We're definitely going to get into that. Yeah. Um, yeah. I'm curious. So when when did things start to become tender and painful? Were, were you doing like a self-exam? Did you know that something just wasn't quite right? What what led you to the doctors or the discovery of that lump? Yeah, I I was uh, always had um, cysts um, and I had just had a mammogram a little over a year before, probably a year and a few months before. Um 
I had a mammogram and an ultrasound and they were both clear. So, um, I had gone through that year after I went through a lot of, um, emotional stress as well. And, um, I, yeah, I just self-exam. I, I felt something, um, painful and I, I actually did some research and said, you know, read that, um, breast cancer is not usually painful. Um, but I went to get it checked out anyways and, um, and received the diagnosis a week later. So, and how, how was that diagnosis? I just spoke with somebody on the show not that long ago who said that their doctor told them over the phone. That's how I received that diagnosis. I was actually driving home from the gym and, um, the, uh, uh, the mammogram, uh, place called me and told me that it was positive. They did a biopsy there. Um, mm-hmm. So they did an ultrasound and a biopsy, which was horrendous. <laughs> um, yeah, not very sensitive to what you're going through at that time. But um, yeah, and I received the news over the phone. So I had to pull over and uh, sit in a parking lot for a little bit and call my family to meet me at my house. Yeah, talk to me about the emotion that just washed over you, because as you said, this is kind of the last thing that you were expecting. You had done some research even, and you went there just to be, essentially, from what you were saying, just on the safe side, erring on the side of caution, and then you get blindsided. What were the first emotions that you felt? Um, Definitely shock. Uh, I, I don't really recall... I remember going home, and my family did meet me at my house, and... um, I don't recall, you know, if my children were there. Um, yeah, it, w- it was shock. Um, and there is a lot of it that I don't remember. My mother, thankfully, I had someone to guide me through the whole process. Right. And uh, we, we went to, there's a very big cancer institute here in Buffalo. And um, she took me there. Uh, we had some connections. Um, but honestly, it felt like I was in a, a cancer factory. It was um, it was very uh, factory-like. I mean, we moved through a line for blood work, and, and, and my emotions were just all over the place at the time. But um, and, and they had support there, but I don't think anyone can really understand what you're going through mm-hmm. um, when you receive this diagnosis. And then to find out that it had metastasized it and metastasized um, and it was stage four was just devastating. Let's, let's talk about that in just a second. When you, when you called your family members and you were pulled over to the side of the road, did you tell them what the doctors had just told you or did you just ask them to meet you at the house? Do you remember that? I know that you said it was kind of a blur. Yeah, I do remember telling my mom I was, I, I was diagnosed with breast cancer, that the, the biopsy indicated breast cancer. Yeah. So I think everybody was just in shock. Um, And I remember um, just pulling into the garage. Everyone was there and just hugging me. And um, yeah, what do I do next? I mean, you don't really know what you're going to do, what what the next move is. Right. So. So how quickly were you uh, in the doctor's office after that? Um, Pretty quickly, we 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 um, started. They wanted to start um, treatments uh, right away, and of course, um, the hospital that I went to was um, a research hospital. So they wanted to try out the newest 
medications on me. And they actually first diagnosed it as uh, stage two. Mm -hmm. um, they did a CT scan and they didn't see any metastasis. So they were just going to treat it according to the size of the tumor. Um, and um, at this hospital, my information was lost. Appointments were shuffled. It was it was just really chaotic, and I didn't feel comfortable there. And I told my mom, I I, I can't come back here. So we found a small um, smaller group, an oncologist who who treats patients um, very close to my home. And um, I started seeing him, and he did a um, my uh, the breast surgeon ordered a, a PET scan which showed all of the cancer throughout my body. So I had it, um, my pelvic area was just um, my acetabulum, my pelvic area was covered in lesions, my spinal cord uh, had lesions on it, my ribs um, mm. had lesions. So um, they started uh, treatments. I was diagnosed in October and I started treatments in February. And I would imagine uncovering the fact that it had spread to other regions in your body, that must have come as equally as big of a shock as the initial diagnosis. Yeah. Yeah. I was just talking to my mom about that the other day, and she um, was she remembers um, when I was told it was stage four and how it was just told to me in a very casual way, and let's move on to the next thing. And my mother was like, hey, wait, hold up a minute here, because she could tell that I had not even processed it. Right. that information you know it wasn't expecting that at all so what did the doctors tell you as far as the prognosis at that point it sounds like that's a pretty severe case yeah they told me that they could treat me but they would never be able to cure the cancer and um and that was and that was it and i i literally just put my life in in his hands um for the next three months of treatment you know there's not really much else i i was looking into holistic treatments, mm -hmm. even at stage two diagnosis. But once they diagnosed it as stage four, I didn't feel like I could mess around at all and, and try to find a holistic um, oncologist and, and play around with that. I was really fearful for my life at that time. I had two young children, you know, one was 13 and one was nine. And um, I just felt like I had to, to move on it. So what were the conversations like with the children that you remember? I mean, even if you don't remember the initial one, as you get that, that second diagnosis that, no, this isn't stage two, it's stage four, did you go back to them and say, hey, this is what mom is facing right now? I did um, explain to them a little bit uh, about what I, was, what I was about to go through. Um, I didn't give them those kind of details at all, um, and... Uh, you know, told them I was going to lose my hair and I was going to be pretty sick for a few months and, and things like that. Um, and that my mo my mother and my stepfather were going to help out. So, um, yeah. Uh, I mean, I would imagine that they were probably your, your biggest concern, you know, making yeah, sure. Yeah, they were definitely my biggest concern. Um, I had just gone through a divorce and um, moved them back to um, Buffalo from Arizona and um, we had, you know, gone through a major family disruption and a lot of trauma in, in that area. And then this came within six months of, of that happening. So it was um, pretty intense. <laughs> so all of that pretty happened intense. within that, that year and a half window from the last time that you had gotten that clear scan to the time yeah. that you had that diagnosis. It, mm -hmm. it, it's astounding to me how quickly this kind of 
came about for you within a year and a half to yeah. go all the way to this stage is just, I mean, wow, that makes my head spin. I can't imagine how it was for you. Yeah, it is. Um, a lot of it is a blur still. <laughs> I still really, um, I kind of just moved through it, you know, and um, quickly. <laughs> Did the doctor give you any sort of statistics as far as, you know, a, a reality check of, you know, these are your odds. I, I hate to be so blunt, but I no, think that no, people will fine. be wondering. Yeah. Um, he did say, um, I remember my mom saying to him, how could this happen? She's so healthy. She lives such a healthy lifestyle. And he said, well, thankfully she does live a healthy lifestyle because we'll be able to treat her very aggressively and she'll survive it. And, um, yeah, that was, that was an interesting, um, thing for him to say. And then he also told me that um, I was going to live to be 86 and then I was going to be hit by a bus. <laughs> so. Well, I mean, I'm on board right until that last part. <laughs> I, I still think about that. I'm like, gee, I hope that doesn't happen. <laughs> <I'm>, <laughs> I mean, my goodness. But, so my, that was his way of telling me that I was going to survive and um, I was going to be okay. So, <laughs> Well, that's good. I mean, I mean that must have been, you know, just a real weight off your shoulders. But nonetheless, I'm sure that, you know, you come home and, and being a nurse yourself, I mean, you, you kind of had the sense of what it was that you were facing and the battle that you were about to, to wage with yourself. I mean. Yeah, I, I don't think I really knew that reality. I had worked as most of my nursing career was work working in mental health nursing with mm. children. So, um, yeah. And I was actually a school nurse at the time, um, that I was diagnosed and, um, yeah, I don't think I, I could prepare myself for what I was going to go through. Um, I actually remember fighting it and the, the, the biggest concern I had was losing my hair. Right. So, um, yeah, that was that like, is there any way I could do this without losing my hair? But um, I soon found out that there was not. <laughs> I'm sorry, Christine. That's just not in the cards. Right, but you have exactly. that bus to look forward to. So that's nice. That's right. The bus thing. <laughs> <laughs> so what was the course of treatment? What uh, What did you start doing? Um, yeah, they, they treated me with um, really intense uh, chemotherapy treatment for three months. And I also had... Um, uh, radiation treatment just to one uh, lesion. Um, well, I had a cluster of lesions in my acetabulum, uh, the socket, uh, my hip socket. And so they treated that with radiation treatments. And um, I had a, a mastectomy. And um, then I was put on uh, Herceptin, which is a medication um, that specifically targets the HER2 protein, which I had a HER2 positive breast cancer. Um, and I was supposed to be on that for about 18 months. But um, when I was ready to celebrate getting off of that infusion, um, he told me that I was going to be on that protocol for the rest of my life. And um, that, you know, this was, if I wasn't having any side effects from it, they're not going to stop it. I think he was really probably afraid to stop it, I'm sure. Sure. Uh, so I've been getting that. Um, every three weeks for the past six years. And one of the side effects is heart damage. So um, they've been doing echocardiograms um, every three months to make sure that there wasn't any heart damage. How did your body respond to everything, the chemo, the radiation? Uh, you were just going through it at that point. How were you holding up? 
Um, actually, it was um, it was an interesting cycle. I, I when before I started the treatments, I was a runner. I was an avid runner, so I would get a treatment, um, and the next day I would really start to feel it. Um, uh, it would take me a couple days to recover. Um, and then I pick myself back up and try to start running again. So by probably two days before my my next treatment was due, I was running maybe one to two miles um, very slowly, but I was still running. And I had um, I had been drinking a lot of um, green drinks and um, juicing, doing a lot of juicing. That was my main source of nutrition while I was going through this um, whole treatment. So I actually felt. I felt really good, uh, you know, once I got through the couple days right after the infusion of chemotherapy, um, I felt I felt good. So how important was it for you? I guess more from a, a mental aspect to stay physically active throughout and not just wallow in between the treatments. I, I think that it's so important because you, you said you were so active before any of this came about that mm -hmm. you had that that sense of normalcy maybe that was you grasping it's a way to say hey i'm going to be okay yeah definitely i think it was it was very important for me to do that i would start walking um and then eventually within you know five days i'd try to run again so it was a and then i'd be getting another treatment so then it would knock me on my butt again and i'd, I'd try to pick myself back up but it was very important for me to um, to, to keep physically active, definitely, in whatever way I could. And were you working throughout the treatment? Yeah, I was working throughout the treatment, and I was probably missing, um, I was missing the day after um, each treatment. Um, and that was it. I, I stayed, um, I was working, actually, I was working part-time at the time, 18 hours a week. So okay. that was, a, yeah, that was helpful that I didn't have to be there 40 hours, you know. For sure. And yeah. your, your colleagues, they were pretty understanding or did you kind of keep them in the dark? Oh, no, everybody was very supportive. They did a, um, a circle for me. They had a, a spiritual circle, prayer circle for me. Um, people were bringing me food um, every day. And yeah, very supportive community I was in at the time. So it was great. That's great. That's great. Mm -hmm. So yeah. let's let's shift gears. Let's put the focus. You just said food. So let's put the focus on nutrition. Um, mm -hmm. Going into this, you were still eating a lot of cheese and ice cream and things like that. But as you began to do your research, you stumbled across stumbled upon whole food, plant based dieting. And I did. Yeah. When did you start to make that switch? Um, actually, it was it was right after my uh, chemotherapy. Um, I I did not start eating um, cheese again. Uh, I, I couldn't tolerate it while I was getting chemotherapy, um, but I just never started eating it again. I, I, towards the end of the treatments, I started um, reading about um, whole food plant-based living, and I could tell how good I felt um, just by eliminating those dairy products out of my diet, just how much better I felt. Um, I can't even describe <laughs> the feeling, but um, I knew, I said to myself, I am, I'm already there. I'm just going to live a whole food plant-based. I was actually more encouraged to live a vegan lifestyle because it was a lot about ethics for me sure, sure. and um, the dairy industry and things like that. Um, but I, 
I just felt so clean and so light and so spiritually connected that I did not want to put those foods back into my diet at all. How do you think that that benefited you during the course of treatment had you kept the dairy in your diet? Oh, I think it had a, a, a huge benefit. I, I actually just mentioned that to my oncologist. You know, he was he was talking to me about um, how I started developing this can- cancer when I was an adolescent and, you know, it could have been plastic, uh, microwaving plastic and all of these other things that could have caused it. And I told him, I said, you know, you have to admit the connection between eating animal products and developing cancers. And you're spending all of this time and effort treating people with all of these pharmaceuticals. And then they're going home and they're eating a ham and cheese sandwich. And they're causing more inflammation in their body. And he, he said, he, you're, you're absolutely right about that. But he sadly said he does not have the time to talk to patients about what they're eating and how they're living, um, what their home life is like, their lifestyle is like. So, um, yeah, it made a huge influence on every time he sees me, he says, you just look amazing. You look so good. And I really do feel so good. I have never felt this good. So. Oh, you look happy. You look healthy. That's for daggone sure. Thanks. Thank you. <laughs> So here we are. Uh, how many how many years ago was this diagnosis? It was twenty thirteen. So six years, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Uh, and and where are you now, health wise? Um, I actually, he, uh, my oncologist just took me off of the Herceptin. I was, um, it was causing migraine headaches. Uh, so he said, we'll just take it off. And um, Thankfully enough, um, I have cancer markers, a CA2729, and it shows when cancer is active in my body. It's been very, very low for the past six years, and he can monitor that those numbers with blood work every three months. So if he sees that creeping up beyond 30, when I was diagnosed, it was 43. Um, so if he sees that creeping up, you know, then they'll start doing scans and everything like that. But um Right now, there has really been no activity at all, so I'm very blessed. You're feeling pretty good. You're, yeah. Would, would you go so far as to say you're feeling pretty confident that you'll hit that 86? Yes. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I am, definitely. That's great. So how, is, how have you changed your life since this time? Because I think that when there's something so dramatic that a person goes through, it really changes their outlook on everything and the trajectory of, you know, not just how they view things, but their careers and, and everything. So now you're a, a certified health and wellness coach as well. Is is that all part of your journey? Yeah, the health and wellness coaching has been interesting. Um, it gave me an insight into... Um, primary care. Uh, I Once I um, received that certification, I accepted a job as a wellness coordinator with a um, primary care physician. And um, the description of the job was amazing because I thought I was going to be able to talk to people about this and, um, and kind of guide them through transitioning to a whole food plant-based lifestyle. And once I got into that practice, there was no opportunity for that. And I realized that as much as the physician wanted to do that, he was tied to um, treating these patients with medication and, um, you know, getting money from insurance companies. And he, he, 
health and wellness coaching is not covered by insurance, unfortunately. So um, I ended up doing just the basic uh, nursing jobs in uh, primary care practice, and that's not what I wanted to do. Um, I did not believe, I, I do not believe that it is okay to slap a Band-Aid on hypertension, high cholesterol, diabetes, all these things, and not treat the underlying cause. And that is a lifestyle, our food system, which is, you know, toxifying people, honestly. And I still work for, for this primary care physician opening notes so uh, for him, for his practice. So I can see all of these diagnoses and 75% of the notes that I open are people with breast cancer, prostate cancer, hypertension, um, high cholesterol, diabetes, and all of those come together in one package. Mm. And it is fascinating to me to see that. Um, but yeah, I mean, it's definitely motivated me to, um, to try to educate others. So I'm working with high school students right now. And every opportunity I get, every opportunity I get, I try to teach them about um, about nutrition, about you know the foods that we're eating, and about the industries that really are abusive to our society, to the animals, to the earth, all of those things. I'm curious how how are the kids in terms of receiving that type of information? Because it seems to me that this younger generation that's coming up now actually is more interested in taking better care of their bodies. So are, are they pretty receptive to the message? They are receptive to the message, but I think um, the high school students that I'm working with are still, they still have their feet planted in this, in this destructive food system, unfortunately. And um, I, every day I talked, I was able to go into a classroom um, last week. And when I left, the teacher told me everybody was saying, you know, oh, I want to be vegan. I want to be vegan. The problem is um, there aren't many people around to to show them how to do it and how to turn away from this. It's it's like an abusive relationship, mm -hmm. honestly. You know, once you break out of it, you see how wonderful it is. And but but getting out of it is is difficult. And we've been eating this way. Um, for a very long time in these industries have a lot of power and telling us what we need to eat and it's food that's making us sick. So I think, you know, the more people get on board and educating others, the better it will be and the more support we can get for people to transition um, to a healthier lifestyle, the better it will be. What about your two most important students, your, your children? Um, yeah. what, what have you been able to teach them throughout this entire process? Yeah, it's been it's been interesting. I think, um, um, well, they've definitely seen me um, crawl out of the mud, per se. <laughs> um, <laughs> and um, I raised my both my girls vegetarian. Um, so uh, when I decided to stop eating um, cheese and dairy, it was very difficult for them, and they actually put up a very big fight. I, I refused to buy it and bring it into my home. And um, I, I received a lot of complaints from them. And um, I saw firsthand how difficult it is for even children to 
to get out of that addiction, addiction, right? But um, I'm also a very strong animal advocate, and I um, I am an organizer for a local animal rights group. So my girls have um, been privy to the information about the industries and the animal suffering involved. So that fuels their fire. So both of them are. Um, trying to live a vegan lifestyle. Um, they eat whole food, plant-based, because that's all I cook for them. Um, my oldest daughter's in college, so the options are not always there, but right. <laughs> they have the information for sure. So. And before I let you go, what what message do you have for someone who may have a strong genetic link to breast cancer in their family, or maybe they were just diagnosed, or they're just terrified that they they will be getting it at some point. You've been through that mud. You pulled yourself out, as you said. Mm -hmm. What kind of words of hope and inspiration can you offer them? Um, I think that autonomy is probably one of the most important things to hold on to throughout all of this. Um, You do have to um, give your doctors, you know, um, control in the pharmaceutical way when you're diagnosed, but, but you have the power to change your lifestyle. And, um, what always, what always fueled my fire was the fact the cheeseburger law. I don't know if you're familiar with the cheeseburger law, but these industries who are putting out these horrible foods for us, telling us we need to eat um, animals for protein and dairy for calcium and all of that. They actually have a clause that we cannot sue them if we have a disease that is caused by eating these products because we should know better. We have a choice whether we can choose their products or whether we can choose bananas and broccoli and lettuce and grains and things like that. So you have a choice here. And I think, um, you know, educate yourself and learn about whole food, plant-based living. And, um, you know, it's a fear to not have enough protein. It is, it is not reality. Um, definitely education is important, too. And you will yeah, be all right. Yeah, you, you will are... be all right, <laughs> definitely. Um, I mean, I know there are some cancers that are genetic, and but you, you, you're predisposed to developing a cancer but it doesn't mean that you have to develop a cancer so you have to try to live the healthiest lifestyle you can by getting active and eating healthy foods christine collins you are an inspiration to us all thank you so very much for your time today thank you it was really a pleasure christine is such an inspiration I want to go back to the timeline that she gave. Isn't it amazing how quickly everything developed for her? Just in 18 months, how that cancer had grown and then spread to other areas of her body. 18 months, just a year and a half. And to overcome all of that during what had already been an exceedingly difficult time in her life. Man, what a role model her daughters have. Wow. Next up, we're going to be putting the focus back on prevention as we welcome Dr. Christy Funk back to the show. She's here now with a third of our four steps to beating breast cancer. 
and that is keeping the cork in the wine bottle, not tapping the keg, not pouring a drink. She's here to talk about cutting way back, and in even a lot of cases, completely eliminating alcohol. This is interesting, and in a lot of cases, it's difficult for people to accept. Because after all, how often have we heard about the health benefits of red wine? But if we pause and we take a look at the wider scope of research, what if the risks don't nearly outweigh those benefits? Time now to dive into the science behind alcohol and cancer. Continuing our look at our Let's Beat Breast Cancer campaign all month long, we've been talking about the four-pronged approach to it. We've talked about eating a plant-based diet. Last week, we talked about exercising regularly. This week is one that I think is, is going to crush a lot, of, a lot of hearts, but it's so critically important. And with that, we welcome back to the program Dr. Christy Funk. Dr. Christy Funk, you are the author of Breasts, the Owner's Manual. You are fantastic. You have been here giving us all of these pearls of wisdom all month long, and I'm so happy that you're back to talk to us again this week. Glad to be here. Prong number three is limiting alcohol consumption, which I think is a surprise for a lot of people because, you know, everybody associates that glass of red wine as almost this magical health elixir, you know? So what's the disconnect here? Why should women be limiting alcohol in terms of lowering the risk of breast cancer? Unfortunately, for my drinkers out there, alcohol does increase estrogen levels, and it also impairs your immune system function. And one of the main drivers for why alcohol leads to a bump in breast cancer is that it inactivates this enzyme called MTHFR. And 40% of people just genetically have a sub-functioning MTHFR. So it's enough, it gets by, but then whenever you drink alcohol, you inactivate it. So what does it do? It's converting folic acid that you're getting from your leafy greens and cruciferous veggies into its activated form, which is called methylfolate. Methylfolate runs around and fixes DNA when it goes awry. And of course, at the root of every cancer cell is a mutated DNA, right? It's altered and that's what gets replicated. And now it's this altered little animal that doesn't respond to your body's signals. So it doesn't care that it was not supposed to divide today. It's going to divide, divide, divide. So it's lost the responses to the signaling of your body. And that's what a DNA mutation is at its core. And methylfolate will come in and either repair that or throw the cell out if it can't repair it. But if you drink, and if you drink daily, you're constantly hitting your MTHFR. So you're never getting the methylfolate you need. So what is a drink? In America, it's 14 grams of alcohol because we supersize everything. And <laughs> so that would be five ounces of wine is 1.5 ounces of hard liquor is 12 ounces of beer. Okay. So pick your poison. And here we go. A drink a day increases breast cancer by 10%. Two drinks a day, 30%. Three drinks a day, 40%. And you can just keep on adding another 10% per drink and probably around then call your doctor for help. But <laughs> if you're drinking though, one or two drinks a day in this Phenomenon is definitely on the reported rise. There are more women drinking today in America than ever before in our history as a nation. And I believe a lot of that has to do with stress and man mismanaging it with alcohol because we have entered the workforce in droves and now we're trying to do it all and be a mom and be 
a professional and be a friend and be a wife and be, you know, it just is we have an endless to-do list. So we've matched and in some pockets in some cities exceeded the drinking levels of men who have turned to alcohol possibly for those very same reasons way back. But the point simply is that alcohol at the end of the day increases cancer risk. Therefore, removing or limiting alcohol will decrease your cancer risk. However, some intelligent people out there are probably saying, wait a minute, wait a minute, I thought that a drink a day, a drink a day kept heart attacks away. And that is actually true. In some studies, it's becoming less true. Some of the studies are getting a little bit murkier as there's more focus on alcohol and its heart health benefits. However, there is some, some veracity to red wine in particular actually decreasing all-cause mortality, including breast cancer mortality, but in a four to eight ounce range and then one or fewer a day. So four to eight ounces of red wine has resveratrol, which is a very powerful antioxidant, anti-cancer agent that's actually the um, source of a couple different studies going on right now as using resveratrol as an anti-cancer agent in breast cancer specifically. So it does have these properties and then it also has an aromatase inhibitor effect red wine does so it decreases your estrogen projection but not when you drink too much of it then you get into the carcinogenic effects so one of the workarounds if you're wanting to have that glass of wine and a, it's you know a day for celebration or even if you're just having it because you still are holding on to those studies with the heart health benefits and a 10% increase in breast cancer, I want to put that in perspective. Sometimes these numbers get really um, hard to interpret and put into your absolute risk in your life. So let's just say you are 40 years old. The chances of getting breast cancer this decade between 40 and 50 is a 1 in 69 chance. Okay, so if you have a drink a day, then that risk becomes 1.1 in 69. That's a 10% increase. So it isn't that astronomically high, especially if you offset that. Even the American Cancer Society today says one drink a day for women, two drinks a day for men is probably neutral or health, helpful when it comes to the heart stuff and not a really adverse thing to do. So one thing to think about, if you are going to choose to drink, do it judiciously and don't exceed more than a glass a day. You could not drink at all. You could drink less. But when you drink at all, I would suggest you do take methylfolate because if you're inhibiting your MTHFR, especially if you're one of these poor metabolizers and don't even know it, as I said, 40% of people already are genetically bad with their MTHFR. So you would supplement with methylfolate. There's a great supplement called Cosmo Companion, which is methylfolate B6 and 12, which become glutathione in your body, which is a very powerful antioxidant. And it has a bunch of botanicals that support and protect your liver cells as they detox alcohol and it enhances glucose metabolism. So that would be something to offset some of the ill effects and then you get just the gains like the resveratrol and the aromatase inhibitor activity from a glass of red wine. From a glass of red wine, but overall, I mean, is in your opinion as a doctor, do the benefits of that, that little bit of red wine, does that outweigh the risk or you know, take it off the plate completely or keep it out of the glass completely, I should say? Yeah, that's a better way. Keep it out of your glass completely. You know, the doctor, full doctor hat in on display, alcohol is a class one carcinogen and you should avoid it. Gotcha. I, I like the, the doctor hat with the two-handed tug. That's a big brim you got on that hat, Doc. <laughs> it is a big brim. 
Uh, before I let you go, I got to ask you once again, uh, the Cancer Kicking Summit coming up next year, April 2020. This is exciting stuff. Uh, remind us uh, about this. It is. I would love to see you all there. So the Cancer Kicking Summit is a two-day retreat at the gorgeous Oceanfront Resort Terranea in Southern California, where you and I will be taking a deep dive into your soil of your life, planting some trees there to make sure we grow the most fruitful, bountiful existence you ever hoped possible. And what we learn there is going to surprise you, but it's also going to leave you changed with an action plan. I'm a huge fan of actionable takeaways. I don't like getting all hyped up and excited about something and then already forgetting all of it and angry by the time I get home having struggled through the traffic. Yeah, Just right. If you're, if you're not native to L.A. So please <laughs> tell me. It's going to be an awesome two days, sure to change your life. And blow your mind. And I do believe that uh, you're uh, offering the exam room listeners a, a, a discount code, correct? I am, and that code is PCRM. So enter that at checkout for a hefty discount. Well, that is awfully generous of you, and uh, you can go register right now. PinkLotus.com slash summit is the website where you go to uh, sign up. And April 2020, that sounds like a lot of fun. You know, you're talking about planting trees, and it sounds like it's an organic approach that you're taking. So, like, it's a whole thing that's going to happen out there. It is. Please join me. (laughs) All right. And uh, Doc, please join me again next week. We've covered three of the four prongs. We've got one more to go. Next week is a big one for a lot of us. We're going to be talking about maintaining a healthy weight and why that is important in lowering your risk of breast cancer as well. Dr. Christy Falk, talk to you next week. Have a good one. The Physicians Committee's Let's Be Breast Cancer campaign is made possible in part by Tofurky. From Thanksgiving roasts to deli meats, Tofurky has all your favorite plant-based proteins to help make your vegan transition an easy one. Browse their selection and find out where you can purchase Tofurky online at tofurky.com. Buy Sweet Potato Soul, a delectable health and wellness blog from cookbook author Jeannie Claiborne. For vegans on a budget, be sure to download her five-ingredient vegan e-cookbook to save money while still making those masterful meals online at sweetpotatosoul.com. Buy Ruby, an online culinary school teaching all the essential cooking techniques. Ruby will make you feel like a pro plant-based chef in no time. Courses are available for individuals, groups, and for healthcare professionals. Sign up and bring more plants into your kitchen at ruby.com. That's R-O-U-X-B-E dot com. And by Rodman's. What began as a little corner store in 1955 has blossomed into an international marketplace filled with exotic foods and housewares. Family owned and operated in the Washington, D.C. area. Online at Rodman's.com. Next week on the show, we will be wrapping up our Let's Be Breast Cancer series as we rethink pink with beta carotene. Orange is the new pink. Think of the carrot and beta carotene, but it's not just carrots that are rich in beta carotene. And they're important because antioxidants fight cancer. And that's very important, especially in this Breast Cancer Awareness Month. Specific to beta carotene, how does this thing really help prevent breast cancer. Yeah. So when we say antioxidants, it's quite literal. When you are just living your life, things are oxidizing in your body. And certainly there are there are things you can do in your life that are 
pro-oxidizing and then things you can do that are anti-oxidizing. And when, when we're experiencing this oxidation inside of our bodies, there are certain components that we can put in to buffer that. And those are the antioxidants, right? And these super colorful foods full of antioxidants, it's because these plants, they themselves rely on these powerful um, colors and carotenoids to protect them living their harsh little lives out there in the dirt. They need to be protected. And when we eat them, we um, impart that protection in our own bodies. So it's, it's a pretty uh, amazing relationship we have with our plant friends. Um, they're trying to protect themselves and they're happy to share that that natural component they have with us. There are actual studies that show that women who consume the most of these beta-carotene rich um, food sources have a 19% reduced risk for developing breast cancer. Orange is the new pink. That is on next week's show. Plus, Dr. Christy Funk will be back one final time with the fourth and final step to beating and preventing breast cancer. That step? Getting down to and maintaining a healthy weight. It's amazing to me how large of a role fatty food plays in chronic disease, and certainly breast cancer is no exception. So make sure that you subscribe to the Exam Room Podcast by the Physicians Committee on Apple Podcast and wherever shows are available so you can be among the first to download it. And please, when you subscribe, this is super important. When you subscribe, also leave a five-star rating so that we can reach as many people as possible with this life-saving information. The higher our rankings with those five-star ratings, the higher our rankings, the more eyes and ears will see and hear these shows. And your help can go a long way toward saving a life. If you ever have any questions or loose ends that you hear on the show that you want for us to tie up, please don't hesitate to reach out. We're on Twitter at Chuck Carroll, WLC, and at PCRM. You can also shoot us a message on Instagram at Chuck Carroll, WLC, and a little bit different for the show spelled out at Physicians Committee. We would certainly love to hear from you and answer whatever question you might have. My thanks again to amazing breast cancer survivor Christine Collins and to dietitian Lee Crosby as well as Dr. Christy Funk for joining us today. And for everyone here at the Physicians Committee, I am the weight loss champion Chuck Carroll. Thank you so very much for listening. And remember, keep it plant-based and let's beat breast cancer. Breast cancer.